And welcome back to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Caleb Fornari. Hey, how's it going? We have Jeffrey Groman. Hey, Charles. Back as a regular panelist this time, we have Will Button. Hey, everyone. Happy to be here. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And we have a special guest this week. It is Jan Stoneman. Jan, do you want to say hello and introduce yourself real quick? Sure. Hi, everybody. Great to be here. I'm Jan Stoneman, and I'm a solution architect. I work at uh, Smartronics. They're known for working with large government organizations and enterprises. And yeah, I've, I've worked in AWS for a couple of years. Before that, I was in music. I went to Juilliard for composing. And so um, I made that transition that several of my music colleagues have made from from music into software engineering. Oh, nice. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. I might have to pick your brain. My 14-year-old is getting into writing her own music and she picked up the guitar, she took a class at their school and she's just really getting into it. So nice. That's that's another thing. So anyway, (laughs) yeah. It's interesting. I actually know a number of DevOps people that came from music into DevOps or, you know, cloud stuff Mm -hmm. and things like that. I'm sure there's a lot that go into software as well, but I wonder if there's some kind of correlation between those, you know, overlapping skills. I think the biggest correlation to me is just the work ethic and the study ethic, because to get to Juilliard or any any level of uh, like high level of music, you got to lock yourself up in a practice room and just be there for like eight hours, you know, and just work at it day after day. And I think if you look at even medical school uh, entry rates, it's surprising. I think I saw something that even music majors do better than pre-med majors at getting accepted into medical school. Just that kind of discipline, I think, helps. Interesting. It's also, from what I understand, there's a lot of pattern recognition and music is very mathematical. Like if you if you break down like the frequency patterns and things like that, the different tones that go together to form chords and things like that. And, and I am not the musician, by the way. It's very mathematical. You know, they follow a certain... Uh, mathematical patterns, you move up the scales and things like that. And so there's a certain intuitive grasp of some of that. And then the patterns as as songs form and things like that. And, and even some of the music types that aren't, I guess, as traditional, you know, some of the raps or hip hops and things like that, they also pick up some of the same rhythms, beats, and and some of the patterns and and things like that. So yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of the same thinking that goes into okay, I see this pattern. I'm going to form this thing. I'm going to I'm going to put this together like this and and form these things into this. Anyway, it, yeah, it's really it, interesting to see how people think about things and and the corollaries that go together. Yeah, I've got a lot of respect for all of the styles and yeah, it's kind of like object oriented music. You know, you you've got your different musical objects and you put them together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then yeah, you've also got different languages in music. You've got. Uh, different styles and those are languages that have their mm-hmm. whole set of customs and styles and even like how you notate them so um when you come to the programming world and you you've got python and javascript it's it's natural to have drawn all of these yep not to absolutely. mention doing 
yeah, not to mention doing like running scales a thousand times just to get it right one time, which seems to rem- resemble most of my CICD builds. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's so true. I can relate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was running some tests earlier today and I'm like, why is, why is, why won't this work? Yeah. I had this little at symbol in front of one of my variables that makes it a completely different variable. Yeah. That was, that was a half hour of my life today. So that's, we don't tell new grads, right? Like 90% of programming or even (laughs) DevOps is just debugging that one little thing that's missing or just slightly wrong in your code. feels great when you find it though. Yeah, absolutely. I love it when my indents are off in Python. (laughs) There's probably a whole episode we could do on just that of (laughs) recounting the hours of our life that we'll never get back for little mistakes like that. My favorite thing is if it's something that wasn't documented and then I have to call AWS support after like two days and <laughs> trying to figure it out. And then they tell me, yeah, yeah, you didn't need that slash. That's not in the documentation. <laughs> yeah. Or when the yeah. documentation is actually not updated or has right. a typo in it itself yeah. and then you're debugging the documentation. That's always fun too. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring that up too, because I was doing Elixir Mix yesterday and my co-host, we were talking about deploying Elixir apps. And he mentioned, oh, yeah, there's this feature he deploys with Kubernetes right onto their EKS. And he mentioned that, yeah, if you do some kind of stateful deploy in EKS and you have a volume that's in one of their clusters, and I can't remember the exact details, but your your container dies and it boots up into the other part of the cluster, it can't find that volume anymore, so it won't boot properly, but that volume is still sitting there. And so you just kind of have to pray that it boots back into the right cluster. And he's like, that's not documented. And there's no way to force it back over there. And so, yeah, the, the other stuff that he's like, it's not documented anywhere. And so, yeah, so you figure out the hard way that, oh, yeah, you really want this over here and that over there and this right here. And then it will all talk nicely to each other and you don't go through the pain more art than science. When, yeah. when something like that happens uh, recently, I've I've noticed the Q&A feature on Stack Overflow where like if I bang my head for a while on a little thing like that, I'll just put the question and the answer right away. So next time <laughs> someone Googles it, they find it right away. Nice. Yeah, and by someone you mean I and by... Yeah, I in, know. A year, I buy... in a year from now when I forget it. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've done that, right? It's like, it's like, I'm going to write this as, uh, as a blog post so that somebody else, when they have this problem, and then, yeah, a year later, year and a half later, I'm like, well, what's the deal with this? Nobody ever runs into this, and I'll Google it, and, and yeah, oh, somebody ran into it, and it was me. Right. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk money, though. Let, let's dive into this, right? Speaking of AWS and money, how, how do you conquer your AWS costs? I mean, that's, that's your blog post here, right? Yeah, yeah. So... A while back, I had a customer of mine when I was freelancing ask me, can I give you a flat fee to get my monthly AWS costs down from like uh, $3,000 a month to $200 a month? Uh, because we're not really supposed to be having a lot of costs. We're, we're uh, you know, doing things serverlessly and we're supposed to be uh, having... Uh, most of the work actually be in our customer environments, not not in our account. Uh, so I was like, yeah, sure, I'll I'll take a look and see how I can reduce your cost from three thousand dollars to two hundred a month. Um, you do the math. How much is that saved <laughs> per year? And there are a lot of tools out there, like uh, the I won't name them, but uh, a bunch of tools that say they help you with costs and. Um, I, I haven't tried them out, so I'm not I'm not going to diss them. But I, I've taken a brief look at a few of them. But I find uh, every cost saving scenario tends to be pretty specific to the organization. Like it's a, a certain experiment that was run and just never turned off. I mean, that's uh, happens that that happens all over the place. But um, it's a specific project, you know, with a specific context. So I go into the cost explorer and I I like to look at 
what is currently the single biggest cost and tackle that first. And then I just go down the list from the biggest cost and eventually end up at it, I got it down to 60 cents a day. So I, oh, I wow. knocked it down to like 30, $30 a month. That's so. less than 200. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. And that I read a blog post where um, I kind of described that approach. And sometimes you run into things where it's like when I, when I'm drilling down in the costs, I might see like API gateway, but I don't know exactly which API gateway uh, deployment that particular cost is coming from. And it can be hard to uh, drill down into those costs. So sometimes I will need to write a, a custom script. When you go into the cost explorer on the AWS console, you can filter by usage type. And then you'll see exactly what aspect of a service is using up the most data, the most cost. And uh, a big one is that I found was CloudWatch get metric data. And that was really interesting because that we weren't doing any you know custom get metric data in the account. And I found on one AWS forum that third-party monitoring services can make uh, get metric data calls to your to your AWS account, and that in order to display their dashboards, you know, and that can eat up a ton of cost. And and those third-party services don't tell you about those. They, they say, we'll give you a free trial for, for a year. We'll give you beautiful dashboards. And you just give us a role that we can assume in your AWS account. And what they don't highlight, and this is for a lot of these services, these monitoring services, you know, New Relic, Datadog, all of them, some of them are a little better at documenting it. They'll make get metric data calls to, to get that data and you're eating that cost. So I asked the colleagues, you know, are we using any third-party monitoring services? And it turned, um, and, and I looked in the IAM users, um, like, and I saw one called, um, I forget which monitoring service, but name your monitoring service dash user. And so just disabling that user the cost went away from one day to the next. Oh, and wow. um, and we had three monitoring services turned on because, you know, they say it's a free trial. So, yeah, just go ahead and turn it on. But we had 3x the cost that we needed um, and we weren't even using any of them because we were those were just experiments. I find that bandwidth that's, that's is usually the, the number one sort of cost that gets out of control on AWS without anyone really realizing it. Like, People, people sometimes don't realize like bandwidth into AWS is generally free. Bandwidth between AWS services is very cheap. Bandwidth out of AWS, very expensive. So exactly. any data you're bringing in, if you want to take it back out or send data somewhere, that tends to tends to get really expensive pretty quickly. So yeah, that's that's usually the first thing I, I generally look at if someone's looking at reducing costs in an account or things like that. Uh, I'm curious when you're when you're looking at reducing costs, there's there's usually a lot of sort of low hanging fruit, so to speak, that you can like easy things you can do to cut costs pretty dramatically. Uh, there's just so many ways to waste money on AWS. Most organizations are, are doing it, you know, at least a hundred different ways. And it's, it's pretty easy to go in and, you know, look at those things and start mitigating some of those costs. What I've found though is usually if you do that within a year, you're kind of back to where you started because like the usage starts growing and those kind of things. Um, what are some like policies or, methods you've used to make sure that those costs don't balloon out of control again? Yeah, uh, so the the biggest thing is uh, tagging, you know, for, uh, for uh, knowing where those costs are coming from, because you look at a database that's just sitting there and if it doesn't have a name or who created it, there's it's gonna be hard to track down if this can be turned off or not. Um, so uh, the first thing is enforcing tagging and uh, AWS config um, has an out of the box way to uh, kind of in enforce tagging. And yeah, so setting your, your tagging rules via AWS config is, is huge. And uh, then also uh, having alerts <laughs> is, is useful. If you notice for this tag, it's going past this threshold, sending an automated message to the Slack channel for that that group of users. If it's uh, for a tag for a certain project, send it to the Slack channel of that project. 
and then uh, you know if the threshold uh, doesn't make sense anymore get rid of noise by increasing the threshold but if it is a valid alert um, you know address it that's just the the first thing that comes to mind I really like the approach of using tags to isolate costs and and track costs over time. Do you have a recommended set of tags or like a standard set of tags that you use? I've been working with um, various customers, uh, like enterprise customers that have their standards across the entire organization. And and each organization has their own standards, but uh, generally some sort of project name and some sort of if you if you've got a way to track that back to a cost center, if that if that basically equals a cost center, then you don't need a separate cost center tag. But otherwise, you can have a if you've got a, a number in your accounting system for that project, you can add that. And for uh, the very basic projects, if it's just myself, like if I'm just working on my own, I always like to have created by. And then I want to know if it's, um, you know, cloud formation or a human who did it um, in the console and what their email is. So created by and then their email. And then, the, you know, not every service tells you the date it was created on. So I, d- I don't see every uh, organization do this, but I really like having the, the date like created on tag, uh, whatever, uh, whatever uh, spelling you use for that. Uh, how about you, Will? What what are your favorite tags for, for that? I I've actually worked on this quite a bit because I work with a lot of startups, and they, if they're a successful startup, you know the costs are going to go up over time as they increase the utilization. Um, but I because I try to like much much like you mentioned, you know, this is not really something you can tackle yourself. There's a lot of tribal knowledge as to whether or not this particular thing is in use or not, and so tagging is a way of tracking that, but the taggings only work if they get implemented. So I tried to simplify it down to an acronym insert, N-S-E-R-T. So you have the name, the service, environment, which is prod, staging, or dev. R is the role or what um, service or what, what role it has in that service. And then the T is the team of some human that you can contact if you have questions about it. Nice. And is the the team, is that an email address or like you just assume that like how to get in touch with that team? Yeah. For the most part, when I've done this, it's just the name of the team and whoever's looking at this is going to know who who someone on that team is. Gotcha. Yeah. I like that uh, because yeah, it can, it can get out of hand how many tags uh, are required at some organizations. <laughs> right. If you tell someone, oh, you got to tag stuff, then you look back 30 days later and you see that everything is tagged, but there's 500 different tag names. <laughs> yeah, the, the worst the worst one I've seen is um, like the worst requirement I've seen at a large organization is where it's like um, seven different values you have to put in between colons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Like it's only for a script, you know, a human can't read it. <laughs> it was somebody's first day with Python. I took that class in in uh, in high school, right, where you had to figure out how many combinations, right? So if there are ten options for the first one and eight options for the second one, and yeah, yeah, you know, so how many thousand is that after you know after you know over many options? I, and, wow. Have either of you guys worked with Terraform much? Yeah, I'm always in Terraform or CloudFormation. Um, I really like the tagging, you know, for Terraform because you can apply the tags once for all of your stacks and, and, and just, yeah, it's, it's like, maybe you can say it better, but it's, it's just this one place you can specify your tags. And then if you want to have additional tags for specific resources, you can add those. But yes. I like how modular it is in that way. Yeah, one of the things that we usually do with Terraform, uh, and I know you can do this on the AWS policy level, I think as well, requiring tagging scheme. But we, if a project is using Terraform a lot, we find that it's easier to just add a tagging module to the Terraform project that requires a specific set of tags for all the resources. Mm-hmm. And that tends to work pretty pretty well for us. Uh, I'm sure in CloudFormation, you could do something similar. I'm just not as familiar with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that way also, if you've got code reviews, if, if you start, if a more senior engineer notices a bunch of tags, um, 
in the template of the junior engineer. It's, it's more obvious because you've got a system and you're not supposed to be tagging here. It's all in, it's mostly in the, in that tagging module. Yeah, that, that helps a lot. I mean, even just having it all checked in as code somewhere, right. And having some kind of review process uh, also helps um, or really having any kind of process there. Um, something else that you've, you've written about a bit uh, was AWS certifications and your process of getting certified. I think you mentioned you have like 20 plus certifications in AWS. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of why you decided to get certified, the benefits of that? I actually don't know. I, I haven't done certifications myself. Uh, it's not something I know a lot about, so I'm quite curious. Uh, sure. Yeah. So uh, unlike the four of you, I haven't been in, in tech for 20 years or so. So um, I, uh, you know, I was coming from music. I, I did the boot camp and I figured someone in the industry who, who was a friend of mine told me, AWS is uh, pretty hot right now. Uh, it might help to look into that a little bit. And I saw, you know, one way to learn AWS is to do a certification. So for all of the certifications, one reason is it kind of structures the learning. It gives me a syllabus to go by and kind of a, a timeline in which to do it because uh, sometimes I'll, I'll set the the date of the certification before I'm ready, just so that I can kind of map out my, my studying. And, and then the other reason is, once I got my first cert, I wasn't expecting this, but all of a sudden, <laughs> recruiters were contacting me for the first time. I mean, for people who have been in tech for a while, you know, like, recruiters are always knocking on the door. But for me, as a uh, former piano teacher, that was new to me and that was pretty exciting. So I was like, oh, I want more of that. <laughs> so um, I got a couple more certifications and, and the recruiting requests started getting more interesting. And then also the third benefit uh, that kind of made me keep doing it is that I noticed some nice synergy with project work I was doing. Like, I happened to learn something in a certification course and ooh, it's useful in a customer project I'm doing at that moment. I noticed that most of all when I was doing the solution architect professional because that goes deep in so many of the core areas of AWS. And I was doing like a, a migration at the time that was involving a bunch of different AWS services uh, like Redis, RDS, Elastic Beanstalk, I am, you know, CloudFormation. And as I was working on that certification preparation, it was really helping me uh, refine uh, refine the project. I found a lot of hidden gems that helped me enhance the enhance the project. And then, like, in, in terms of doing other clouds, uh, because, you know, AWS only has 13, um, and I've got 20, so the others are from Azure and, and Google Cloud. Um, I actually haven't worked in those clouds, like, for customers, but I have found it helpful just to be aware of, like, different ways of thinking about the cloud. Um, like, huh, okay, so AWS isn't the only way to do cloud, and it, it kind of made me think a little bit more deeply. I, I can't name an example right now, but it got in my head a little bit out of, outside of that AWS box just to kind of touch on on these other cloud providers. So one of the questions that I get asked quite a bit, I think you're uniquely positioned to answer, having come from a non-tech background, now working in DevOps, what would, for someone coming from a non-tech background, what certification would you recommend they pursue to get started in DevOps? So the AWS Cloud Practitioner, I can say right away, is, is the one I would recommend because I, it's, it's aimed at business professionals. Um, I, I think mainly people who work in tech and uh, need to have kind of a high level understanding of what are all the capabilities of cloud, in particular AWS. And for someone who's, who's brand new to it, even if your goal is to go into tech, I would definitely recommend there. Even though I was new to the cloud, you know, it, it only took me a week to prepare for that one because it, it, it just asks you like, so if I wanted to have relational database, which service would I use? This one, this one, or this one? Is it IAM or RDS, you know? So that was uh, pretty quick to pick on, uh, pick up on after doing a kind of full-time study at that, at that point for like, uh, five, six days. And I, it really helped me get a, a broad overview of, of all the services. 
and there's a there's a kind of an equivalent. Uh, one more thing I'll say is uh, for for the other clouds, there's a, I think the Azure 900 for uh, for Microsoft Azure, which are, is is called the Azure Fundamentals, and then there's uh, Google Cloud Associate, uh, which I think the fundamentals for Azure and the cloud practitioner are kind of synonymous, but I don't think Google Cloud really has one at that overview level yet because the Google Cloud Associate, I, I would relate that more to the AWS Solution Architect Associate exam. What was the hardest exam that you did or the hardest certification? Definitely the AWS Solution Architect Professional. Like the machine learning AWS one had some far out machine learning stuff that was totally domain specific, uh, not even AWS related, but like hardcore, <laughs> like which model would be the correct uh, one to use for this situation. But the questions in that exam were more straightforward. Uh, whereas in, if you knew the answer, whereas in the solution architect professional exam, the questions were all a page long and every answer is correct, but you got to get the best one. And so it's very, uh, very nuanced. And yeah, so I, w- I would definitely say that one. Sounds like the mirror real life. Every answer is correct, but you got to find the best one. There's a lot of correct <laughs> answers. You got to find For the sure. find the right one. How do you how do you study and prepare to take an exam like that? Do you have any like resources that you'd recommend or methods you use to prepare? Yeah, one of my favorites, just in terms of entertainment value, studying um, with audio. Okay, I'll, I'll back up and I'll, and I'll say I'm an audio. I'm an auditive learner, maybe because I'm from music. So I like learning by hearing. So that works. that's what works for me. And so a lot of my learning is uh, by listening or videos. And I love uh, reInvent talks or other talks on the AWS channel, like this is my architecture, especially uh, the 400 level or sometimes 300 level talks. They give them these classifications tend to contain nuggets of information that are useful on the job and in the certifications. And sometimes, you know, I'm, I'll be listening to a reInvent talk while I'm doing the dishes. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not really picking up on everything here because I'm also a little bit focused on the dishes. So I don't know if this is really working, but then I'll, you know, I'll be sitting in the exam two weeks later. And uh, I don't have like a perfect, uh, you know, uh, memory or anything, but uh, it'll come to me that, oh, I I remember getting the answer to this while I was doing the dishes. So um, yeah, just kind of immersing yourself in reInvent talks uh, when when you have free ear. But the the biggest thing is the hands-on learning and just playing around in the console. Um, Even just click and create service for whatever service it is you're trying to learn and just uh, filling out those options like the provisioned IOPS or whatever, or uh, if it's an Alexa service you're learning because you're doing, sorry, I probably just uh, uh, (laughs) turned on half the world there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And if you're, if you want to use the English or the German Swiss or the German Austrian voice, you know, just getting used to all the knobs uh, is always a big help to me to to put my hands on those knobs. So yeah, one is is listening to talks. Uh, two, hands on labs. Uh, three would be taking a practice exam. I think some people go overboard with it and you know keep taking it, keep taking it until they got a hundred percent. I like to take it like uh, a week before to see if I'm not totally failing it. Um, you know, you can always reschedule it at that point if if you're totally behind. And then um, I'll use the the if I'm if I'm at a good point, like 70, 80 percent, uh, then I'll take whatever parts I'm still lacking on and I'll double up on that in terms of reinvent talks and experimentation. Now, one one last thing I'll say is for me writing really helps. So even though I'm totally new to, to a service, as I'm experimenting with it and learning about it, I'll just write a blog post about the steps of how I'm learning it. And, uh, you know, sometimes I've gotten good feedback uh, on those 
you know, they sometimes people say that it actually helped them, even though I was writing as a total newbie about just describing, now I did this, now I did that. Interesting. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. We were kind of talking a little bit about your journey and a little bit about diving in and learning cloud. Let, let's back all the way up. How do you go from Juilliard right, to, to boot camp and then into this? Because you mentioned the boot camp. And then you kind of glossed over it and talked a little bit about getting certifications. So you want to kind of fill in that front part of the story? Uh, sure. Yeah. I, I took an intro to computer science course while I was at Juilliard because they have a partnership with Columbia. And that was my first ex- exposure to programming. So uh, just your typical intro to computer science with Java, like writing a simple like poker app or whatever. And then... While I was teaching piano, you know, you, you typically teach in the afternoons, so I, I had the mornings free, and I decided to use that to do freecodecamp.org, mm-hmm. I think is what it is. Yeah. And, yep. you know, a lot of boot camps are expensive. Freecodecamp.org is really what it says it is. It's free, and um, it's a nonprofit, and I just did the entire curriculum. I, I might not have had to do the data visualization one on D3. I've never used D3 in my professional experience so far, especially because I'm not a, a front-end developer at this point. But um, I did the whole front-end, back-end, and the algorithm section. And I really like the forum they have there because... Whenever I was thinking, like, what the heck am I doing here? I'm just doing these exercises. When is this ever going to make me a real, like, engineer at a company? I like going to the forum times like that, which mm-hmm. is like once a day, um, and, and seeing other people report that, hey, I got a job. I, I've been doing this for like six months, nine months, a year, and I did an internship uh, or did a, a project, or different people had different results, and but. And then people got jobs and that was always inspiring to read and kept me going. And yeah, I really enjoyed, even though I I haven't been using front-end programming myself um, in more of my recent jobs, it's, it's just good to know like where the, where the traffic is entering, like the, so, so I, I don't consider that wasted that I, that Mm -hmm. I had a month or two of front-end training. And then in terms of making that that leap to having a good job, I I followed the standard of advice of, you know, go to meetups, talk to people. And so I just went to as many meetups as possible, especially at that point where I was like, okay, I've, I've done all the, I've done the curriculum. Some people posting that they've got jobs did less of the curriculum than I have. So I, I better start getting out there. And so I, yeah, I went to a lot of meetups, like the, at that time, I was in Portland. They have a DevOps meetup. They've got a JavaScript meetup, a React meetup. I just went to right. all of them and just talked to as many people as possible. You know, I just got over the the shyness and just said, hey, I'm Jan, <laughs> you know, and just struck up as many. I heard someone say it's a numbers game, you know, just talk to as many people as possible. And eventually, I, I struck a chord with a guy who was creating a startup Dripio for a home watering IoT system uh, and needed a front end uh, for this back end plus firmware that he had uh, written for a really cool um, system that lets you, you know, remotely control your home garden watering. And he needed a front end so that he could kind of pitch this to investors better. And so I uh, said, Great, I'd love to do that. Uh, yeah, you don't have to pay me. I'm, I'd like, I'd like some experience. Uh, so I just spent uh, basically a month creating a, a front end app. I used, I remember, I used Google. Uh, what's it called? Fire. Um, Firebase. Thank you, Google Firebase. Uh, really, really user friendly mm-hmm. database to get started out on for a project like that. And and then I, I think, what did I use? Cordova. Mm-hmm. to to wrap my uh, view programming <laughs> for that and towards the end of that project just as i was wrapping up i attended a talk by ryan jones the ceo 
of serverless guru and he was talking about serverless i went up to him afterwards and said you know great job great talk um, and he asked me a little bit about myself and he heard that i had just gotten a aws cloud practitioner certification <laughs> and he was like oh cool i'm you know i just started a aws consultancy and uh, writing full stack uh, apps and i've i've got a couple part-time uh, front-end and back-end developers, but I'm, I'm starting to get enough projects where I could use a um, full-time developer. And I said, yeah, let's let's chat. And a couple of days later, we chatted. And I, I, <laughs> he told me the thing that got him was that I went to Juilliard. So <laughs> never mind about all the programming practice. Uh, but <laughs> he, he was like, oh, this guy went to Juilliard. He must, uh, he must be pretty serious. Um, and, <laughs> and he gave me a shot. So um, after that, I just uh, worked as hard as possible. And, um, and I stuck around, you know. And, and um, eventually, as I was working, because I kept getting those AWS certifications, um, I, I became the go-to guy for any AWS stuff. And I ended up doing only AWS. And that's where I've been ever since. Oh, nice. Yeah, it makes sense. There's a lot to unpack and I have connections to a lot of the stuff you talked about, but yeah, I love it because you just went after it, right? You got in, did the work. I think that's really the telling thing, right? Is you made the connections, you did the work, found the opportunities and and, and you made it happen. Yeah, one, one other thing I'll say about just doing the work at one point um you know i was going to some meetups but um i i was wrapping up that iot project my first real kind of project and i was like okay it's time for me to get a job i, I know mm -hmm. people who have had less experience than me who already got like a junior developer job it's time for me to get a job i just got to get a job and so mm -hmm. I, I said i am going to have uh informational interview as in meet with someone in a coffee shop, you know, outside of a meetup every day until I get a job. So I'm going to, you know, ask as many people as it takes in whatever meetup I'm going to for a follow-up meetup in a cafe so that I have one coffee shop meetup per day scheduled until I get that job. And right. fortunately, it only took uh, the fourth. <laughs> I got it on the fourth one. I went across town in the I didn't have a car at that time in the bus, you know, just where, wherever the person was, I just asked them, you know, I'll, I'll meet you downstairs in your office at your closest Starbucks for 15 minutes. Uh, I'd like to, you know, buy you a coffee, uh, please. Um, and yeah, that, and I, I think that, that really helped a lot. <laughs> I think for anybody who's listening, who's starting their career, knows somebody who's starting their career. I think there's a lot of lessons uh, that, that Jan just said. One is that, you know, you can start from scratch and in technology today and so many different areas of technology, we're, we're always struggling for trying to find good talent. Anybody who's willing to put in the time and effort to learn to learn something practical, you can get a job. It's, it's you know, it, it's just, it's ripe. It's ripe for anybody who's mm -hmm. willing to work hard because part of it is, I mean, just to be honest, is that we're desperate uh, in many places, right? In many fields. And that opportunity is there. So I think that's one piece. But the second piece that Jan said is you got to be willing to work hard. I, I I can't tell you how many people that I know I've seen through the interview process or even get that first job who just weren't that hungry, who just didn't put in the time and the effort, who weren't willing to get on that bus and go across town to meet with somebody who's been doing this a long time and who can help you move your career along. If you've got the drive and you put in the effort, Right. Technology is, is a great place to be. Yeah, I just did. I recorded a bonus episode and I've been trying to put up bonus episodes on all the feeds every week. And generally, it's the same bonus episode on all the feeds. So if you listen to more than one of the dev chat shows, I am sorry, just delete them on all but one. Right. But the reason I'm putting them out is because it'll help people. And this week, it was the three essential things to get the next thing in your career that you want, right? And sometimes it's simple, right? It's like, I want to raise, I want a new computer at work. I mean, something really simple. And sometimes it's, I, I want my first job. And usually it's people at that stage, that's what they want. They want, you know, I want my first job. 
And it's, it's the same three essential things. You have to have the skills to get the job. And there are three kinds of skills. There are technical skills, there are people skills, and there are organizational skills. And the organizational skills are how do you organize your code? How do you get work done? That kind of stuff, right? Not, not organizational skills as, as, as far as like being part of a company. That's, that's people skills, okay? So the skills, there's relationships, and there's recognition. And if you, if you can build the relationships and you can be seen doing the work, right? You can be seen actually doing the stuff that people want to hire you to do you can get that job. And that's, that's what Jan did. He, he got out there, he made sure people knew that he could do the things that they wanted him to do. He built the relationships with the people who could help him find that job, right? Introduce him to the people who needed him or introduced himself to the people who needed him. And then he made sure that he had the skills so that when they hired him, he could do the job. And he just went out there and did that over and over and over and over again. And he got in front of four people and that was all it took. And that's really it. That's all it takes, but it's a lot of work to get there and you got to go gut it out. And, and yeah, if you're willing to do it, then, then you can have it. You can have whatever you want. I think it's important to maybe for, for people who are really starting from, from nothing or completely outside the tech world, uh, lest they get discouraged. Like it is a lot of work and you do yes. have to be willing to put the work in, but it's probably worth emphasizing also that it's also very well compensated work and the demand is extremely high right now, particularly in DevOps, but also other, other parts of you know, software engineering and whatnot. Really, it, it is hard work. You've got to learn, have some skills. You've got to be you know, kind of teachable and able to, able to self-teach to some extent. You know, networking is always good. But like Jan said, it took him like four tries right, to, to get a job. And that's that's almost unheard of in other industries. People spend years trying to get like a good job in other industries. And when they get one, they don't have recruiters hitting them up every couple of days with other job offers and, you know, things like that. So uh, I just want to emphasize that if somebody's really coming from completely outside the tech world and maybe isn't aware of how it is, uh, I don't want to make it sound too hard for people because it, it is it is difficult. You should be willing to put in a lot of work, a lot of learning it is a very complex field. But it's very rewarding and it's probably easier to get into than a lot of other things. Yeah, that's true. Like Jeffrey said, the work's out there, right? People need competent brains attached to competent fingers that can connect to the internet to do the freaking work, right? Yeah, I, I can but, tell yeah. you in the security space, the dearth of talent is is just, it's huge. Anybody who's willing to put in the time and the effort. I mean, you're going to have to start from the bottom and work your way up because uh, in security it's it's a very complex field but the opportunities are there and anybody who's willing to put in the time and the effort and, and i'll tell you also and i think this is probably true in other areas of technology is that for anybody who's willing to put in the time and effort there are plenty of people with with a lot of experience who are willing to mentor and spend the time mm -hmm. with you i used to have a colleague when i first started in my career who said as long as you know you don't ask me any question you want, as long as you don't ask me the same question twice, meaning that you learn the first time, say you won't put you won't put me off. You know, he was a little bit a little little you know a little uh, grizzly there, but yeah, but but the attitude is there. Like if anybody who's willing to put in the time and the effort and ask questions and just wants to learn, there are a lot of people with a lot of experience who are willing to mentor and to help you every step of the way. And I, I love that that forum on uh, Free Code Camp because mm -hmm. there's so many stories of people putting in that work. And even like I read stories about people with a full-time job and kids and they just put in like one hour every morning for three years and and then, you know, then they got it. Uh, but there, there's a way for everybody and reading those stories for like, every possible scenario everybody like i've found so many ways of how to reach the goal as long as you put in that work yep absolutely so what's next jan what's next for you <laughs> well i'm actually currently taking a course on udacity uh, called uh, python for machine learning uh, it's one of their nano degrees and it it has an intro to python which i kind of breezed through because I use Python for my work anyway. But then it also has like some basic statistics and some introduces you to Jupyter Notebook and mm -hmm. some of the basic libraries that data scientists use like 
Pandas, NumPy, Matplotlib, and then um, yeah, I guess you used to just like calling pre-trained models in a project that that you write. So that's all to say that it seems like a lot of things are maybe going towards machine learning. And so you know, I heard a I'm reading the the book uh, the Pragmatic Programmer right now, and I was already doing this, but I like the way the author put it. As with uh, financial advice, also with with uh, programming, you want to diversify your investment. So, I'm currently diversifying my my knowledge portfolio investment by, you know, just uh, kind of getting a bit of exposure to machine learning at the moment. But also, Smartronics, my my employer, uh, just uh, sponsored a and with with AWS just sponsored an immersion day in uh, data data analytics. Which kind of goes along with the data science, because there's some pretty. It was actually uh, interesting to see the the overlap in between the machine learning course and some of these data analytics tools on AWS, mm-hmm. like Glue and and Lake Formation, um, because you know a lot of times those are used for machine learning. So, yeah, I think I think that'll be my next certification for sure in terms of AWS. But yeah, I'm just going to keep uh, keep learning in that area and see where it takes me. Nice. Yeah, I've been hosting our machine learning show for the last nine months. Oh, wow. Cool. And uh, it's it's been really interesting. So it's not a surprise to me that the data science tools get used a lot for the machine learning because that we talk quite a bit about uh, the data science stuff and curating your data sets for, data, or for machine learning. But yeah, it's it's definitely a growing field, and yeah, it's it's an investment that will pay off for you for sure. <laughs> it was also fun, cool. you know, like the the first project to have you do a dog uh, image classification. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's fun to see what you know the different machine learning models. One recognized my dog as uh, uh, this and breed, and one recognized it as that breed. This is just. Um, very different type of programming um, in terms of the inputs and outputs you you, you get with uh, minimal code. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's also fun just to see what you can do with some of the different tools. I mean, I've played mostly with TensorFlow JS and see what you can get to classify on the web as opposed to with Pandas or uh, you know some of the tools that you use with Python with TensorFlow proper or yeah some of the other tools out there, but. There are a lot of really interesting things that people are doing with it, and they're not they're not slowing down. So I'm I'm curious. There there are tons of videos about this on YouTube about the question of uh, to go theoretical in machine learning or to just stay at the the high level of just uh, using the existing uh, models and, and and things like that. I'm curious, or may, maybe you've already talked a bunch about this, but I'm I'm curious what what you're seeing in terms of. Uh, the DevOps world in particular, like for machine learning roles, the DevOps machine learning overlap and how deep in the machine learning slash statistics stack um, is helpful to go? If you're asking me in particular, I mean, we've talked some about just the infrastructure. Usually when we dive in, we're talking more about training your models, right? Parallelizing and, and things like that, right? And so if you have a very large data set, it's how you're using cloud resources and stuff like that to bring in as much data as you can. And then also to make that all happen as quickly as possible or as efficiently as possible. I mean, once you have your model, usually you're not fighting scaling issues or other issues that way, right? You'll scale that up just like you scale anything else up infrastructure wise and you treat it mostly like any other resource, right? And then all of the other things that we talk about in DevOps generally apply, you know, so your your team structure, your culture, your, yeah, all the other stuff, you know, it, it, it's kind of the same. It's just those those kind of rough bursts of, of that kind of thing in the maintaining your, your data 
the rest of it is all data science and the data science problems and then how you support those systems, right? Because sometimes you you run into a place where you have disparate systems, right? Where you have different kinds of data that come from different kinds of places. And then how do you homogenize that or think about what this means here and that means there and, and stuff like that. And and those aren't really DevOps problems so much as just their their thought exercises in yeah how you how you solve those particular things and reconcile them so that you get a reliable model that properly solves whatever issue you're trying to solve and i am not an expert by any means i am i am an amateur that talks to the professionals so that, that last a bit actually we we did some of that in the aws immersion day on on data analytics you know taking data from somewhere and then kind of mapping it onto a different data type Glue has some, uh, AWS Glue mm-hmm. has kind of out-of-the-box functionality for for doing that. So I guess it sounds like one role where DevOps uh, could, could come in there is um, talking the, to the data scientists and understanding their, their need, um, like that mm-hmm. they need to take that data and transform it that way and saying, hey, Here's this tool that can do it. And this is how you do it. And 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 I'll write a Terraform a template for you to to, there you to go. version control that. Yeah. Yeah, there there are all kinds of options. And I think that going back to what we talked about last week, right? That's where the communication and the the collaboration and and then the real power of kind of the DevOps movement comes into this. We had a real long conversation about what DevOps really is. And it's not just about that infrastructure, it's about it's about what we, what we can really do when we think about an organization as, as a living, breathing organism and, and how we communicate and how we work together and how we collaborate and how, how we fit together so that we can uh, achieve a common goal. And so, yeah, very, very interesting. Yeah, DevOps is communication. <laughs> yep, it's so true. All right, anything else that we want to jump on here before we uh, go to picks? All right, let's, let's do picks. Hey folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Caleb, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. Yeah, so my my pick this week is something called CloudCraft. The, the URL is crowd, cloudcraft.co. Basically, they allow you to create diagrams of your cloud infrastructure, but mm-hmm. unlike a lot of the other diagramming tools out there, it's like really dedicated to uh, the cloud, particularly AWS. I think you can do other clouds with it as well. But it just makes the whole process a lot easier if you're just diagramming cloud accounts or systems within a you know cloud or things like that. I think that's something that gets overlooked in a lot of teams, a lot of organizations, is that sort of visual documentation for maybe somebody that's not totally familiar with like how cloud networking works and what that might look like. You can kind of diagram that out visually for them and probably get it across a lot quicker than trying to like explain it in person or things like that. So for remote teams, particular or teams in different time zones with COVID, a lot of people are remote and are working kind of asynchronously in different time zones and things like that. It's really invaluable. Maybe a second one would be draw.io. It's a little bit less focused on just cloud. It's more general. That one's also, also really good. I've been using that for a number of years. So that's an alternative. If you're looking at something that's not quite as cloud focused, maybe you have a hybrid environment with some on-prem and some cloud or Something like that. That's also great. Cool. I might have to check some of that out. Uh, Jeffrey, what are your picks? So yeah, and the you know we've been talking a lot about machine learning and and uh, Python and pandas and stuff. So you know that's something that I, I'm in the middle of uh, a project right now, and it's it's interesting. So I have no machine learning background whatsoever, but it seems like every once in a while I get thrown into a project where 
we're trying to do some analysis on some ugly dump of log data. And sometimes it just seems like vendors are just trying to make their log data as ugly as possible, just to see who can do it the ugliest, right? <laughs> I don't have a better explanation as to what's going on. And I really want to try. So this is, so it's not a great pick, but it's more like, how do you manage through something like that? So I, I end up like, just because I've done this enough times, I end up, you know, sort of pulling it in using using Python, right, into a data frame and trying to do some analysis that way. And I, I end up just banging my head because it just, it's, you know, some, some of it is you don't even know it's in the data source to begin with. So it's hard to figure out what you're exactly trying to analyze. I, the first thing you got to do is sort of get, understand the data. So for this project, we sort of went, I think a little bit of old school, which was the data set, the data set itself was big enough and just ugly enough. Like it was just malformed and horrible that it was just unusable in something like Excel. Cause it's, it's basically just a, a CSV file. So we ended up using Python and data frames just to clean up the data and be able to put it back out into a clean CSV that Excel could easily read. And I, I think sometimes the old school tools like pivot tables, which are so easy to set up and filter data and just get your eyeballs on it, that that's sort of my pick is my pick is less about the tool and more about the process, about getting it into a format where you can at least get your arms around what's in this data and then start to figure out, okay, now that I understand the data, now I can go back and actually try to do some analysis on it and try to actually massage it a little bit. So it was a lot of this like Python, Excel, back to Python to then do some massaging and, and analysis. So that's sort of my pick is sometimes I don't get too caught up in trying to do things the cool way. Sometimes rely back on the old tools that actually work pretty well I guess the best tool for the job sometimes isn't isn't the one that you're thinking about. Cool. Will. I like that. It's um, Microsoft Excel for DevOps. It still sounded painful to me. <laughs> yeah, it's Microsoft and Excel. There's nothing exciting about it, but but it is quick and it's you know, it's one of those skill sets that if you built it several years ago or even 10 years ago, it keeps chugging away. I, yeah, it sounded it sounded like it was it, it made the impossible possible. Yeah. And less painful than some of the other options. But what yeah. was the old adage that we used to say about the difference member in the old OS wars like 20, 30 years ago? We used to say something like Microsoft or Windows makes the easy, like laughable. I, I can't I'm not use the right term. And Unix makes the impossible doable. Something like that. Anyway, you just reminded me of that. So sorry, Will. <laughs> All good. So my pick this week is a blog post from devops.com titled The Seven Reasons You Shouldn't Hire a DevOps Engineer. And it kind of ties into what we were talking about last week. But to get the full effect of it, I recommend reading the blog post and then the comments because the comments just, some of them just go off the rails. But I think if you put the two of them together, then you get what I, what, um, I think the best way to describe it is when I was in the Navy, we had this thing called a GCE, just a gross conceptual error. And so I think when you combine the article with the comments, you wrap it all up into a GCE. But it's a really good read because for me, I took the parts that I agreed with, the parts that I didn't agree with in both the post itself and the comments. And I kind of wrapped that back up with what we were talking about last week about how really the root cause, the fundamental problem here is communication. Mm. It's funny because what you're talking about there, I swear, like more than half of my technical problems that I run into are communication problems, <laughs> like interpersonal communication problems. It's like, yep, yep. I was being an idiot or you were being an idiot or we we're both being an idiot, <laughs> right? So, yeah. yeah, and and tried to say that and that communication missed the mark. So then it escalated from yep, there. Yep, oh man. Yeah, let me tell you about this last weekend with my wife. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I digress. Yeah, it, that's a monthly occurrence at least. And if, if you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So I'm going to throw out a couple of picks. Uh, did I pick Who Not How last week? 
I you probably did. did. That's still, it's still working in my brain. I'm telling you. Thanks for that. Cause yeah. I actually got it and I started reading it. It's really good. Oh my gosh. I, so I listened to it on audible. I am now working through the physical book because it is just, wow. Anyway. So yeah, it's, it's definitely working, working through me, but anyway, so a couple of things that I'm really enjoying. So I signed up for an adult swim team. I swam in high school, really enjoyed it. I went this morning and I thought, oh, I'll just go for an easy swim, you know, swim practice. I'm supposed to be on a taper for a marathon. I'm running a marathon on Saturday. That that doesn't work with your taper. So I'm not going on Friday, even though I'm supposed to. But just getting out and uh, getting a coach, going for an adult swim team, it was, it was just awesome. I don't know if they call them this everywhere, but at least here where I grew up in Orem, Utah, and then here in Lehigh, Utah, where I live now, it's 20 minutes away. They call them masters swim teams. And uh, anyway, I'm really, I really did enjoy it this morning. I'm, I'm worn out. As my body catches up, I think I'm going to lose about 80 pounds, but I, it, it felt really good just to get out and move. And it was kind of fun because it was in the outdoor pool. Watch the sun come up as I'm panting on the side of the pool. So it, it was awesome. I was there with a bunch of friends of mine who live in the neighborhood. And, you know, one of them was like, afterward, you know, he knew I swam in high school because we went to high school together. And he looks at me and he goes, so how was it? And I was like, it was nostalgic. It was fun. I really enjoyed it. It was a great workout and it sucked. <laughs> and that's pretty well how it summed, uh, summed it up. But it was, it was really terrific. So I enjoyed that. There was something else I was going to pick. And I just, I can't think about it at the moment. One other thing that I do want to shout out about, because I was talking to another friend of mine and he mentioned that he was, he was, so the, and this is somebody from church, but I think it's applicable everywhere. So our, the head of our congregation, uh, I'm LDS. So the bishop, he's going to be gone. And so his first counselor, who's kind of the next in charge is going to be in charge this Sunday. And this is the first week that the full congregation is going to be back in church after COVID and stuff like that. And he's like, I'm just worried that people are, the mask people are going to be all over because they lifted the mask mandate here in Utah. The mask people are going to be all up in the non-mask people stuff. And the non-mask people then are going to get into the mask people stuff. And I don't want to have a fight our first week back and the bishop's not going to be here. And our, our clergy is all lay people, right? So the bishop has a full-time job doing something else. And this guy has, you know, he works at the hospital. And so it, it just made me think, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, if people get up in other people's stuff, they're just going to walk away angry and nobody's mind's going to change. And so, and we see this all over the internet. We see this all over the world. And I just want to encourage people, look, try and be understanding, right? I have strong opinions on this stuff. I think a lot of us have strong opinions on this stuff. But at the end of the day, we're all human. We're all trying to do the best we can. And so just be understanding of each other, right? Some of us are probably right some of the time and others of us are probably right some, some of the rest of the time. And the, the rest of the time, we're probably all wrong, right? But, but we're all just trying to human our way through this thing, right? And through life in general, okay? And it's the same with the politics. It's the same with all of the other stuff that we wind up screaming at each other over Facebook. But you know what? We all want to go to church and have a good experience. We all want to go to the store and have a good experience. We all want to go to the kids' kindergarten graduation and have a good experience. We all want to go sit through the movie and have a good experience. And if we're yelling at each other at all these things, we're just going to get pissed off. And then we're going to go home and nobody's mind's going to change. Okay. So the next time you see somebody wearing a mask or not wearing a mask and it ticks you off, just take a deep breath and let it go. All right. Well said. That's my pick. All right, Jan, what are your picks? All right. So I mentioned this book, but um, I'm currently reading it and really enjoying it. The Pragmatic Programmer. I'm listening to it as an audiobook. And I like how it kind of uh, is challenging me to uh, look at uh, aspects of the software uh, engineer's mind that sometimes I neglect, such as. Uh, he encouraged the author, the two authors, for example, um, encourage the readers to 
learn a new language every year <laughs> just to get a different you know viewpoint on on how things can be structured and a lot of little things like that just uh, to get me thinking and then if i can have one more pick it's another audio book it's a short one just 2 hours by michael pollan as uh, like an uh, on audible about caffeine <laughs> i'm i'm almost done with it and it's just really fascinating history of of caffeine and then coffee in particular so yeah that does sound interesting i don't have a caffeine problem and i'm not in denial either um, well I, I think something like 90% of people do so it uh, it's it's and and I, I like how um you know he goes into old examples from the 1500s and the 1700s and like how it influenced culture at certain moments but yeah there there are the fortunate few who, who do not depend on it <laughs> nice if if people want to connect with you online by the way where do they find you i'm assuming social media github places like that uh, yeah, sure. Uh, you can reach me on uh, Twitter at uh, Jan Stoneman, uh, Y-A-N-N Stoneman. Yeah, uh, you can you can reach me there. Or uh, if you if you want, you can send me a message over LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me there, Y Stoneman. Awesome. Yeah, if you want to just put links to all that stuff in the chat, we'll make sure yeah. that those links wind up in the show notes. And everybody else should also put their links to their picks in the chat. And yeah, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Thanks for coming. This was fun. Yeah, thanks, Jan. This was uh, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thank you. Like I was right, telling uh, Will, this is uh, my first time actually on a podcast. So thanks for uh, thanks for bearing with my nervousness at the beginning. And uh, it was really fun. <laughs> I learned a few things. <laughs> and it was great yeah. to meet you. No problem. Cool. All right, folks. Well, till next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.